0: TechSounds presents EduTrends. Good afternoon. I'm Jose Pepe Escamilla. I'm Associate Director for the Institute of, for the Future of Education. And today I'm here with Jeff Salingo, who is a, a writer, a journalist in higher education, very well known around the world. Jeff, it's good to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. So we are living these uh, times of change and in uh, on the, on the last uh, 20 months, we have seen the pandemic uh, doing bad things, but our people are argue that it's doing good things. Do you think that the pandemic will leave us, what's what the balance of the pandemic? What do you think uh, I think the
1: pandemic? balance of the pandemic is probably somewhere in the middle, right? So from a bad perspective, I think it has definitely impacted a student and probably faculty mental health and and well-being. Um, Education and humans are social animals. We do like some in-person interaction. And we know that learning uh, is also somewhat of an in-person interaction. Doesn't mean it has to be 24-7 or all the time or always on, but there definitely is an interpersonal interaction, especially with young people when it comes to education. And so I think that if there is any bad portion of the pandemic, it has been the lack of in-person interaction among students. And by the way, the next generation of students as well. I have a 10 and 12 year old at home. um, And social learning is even more important for them. And socialization is even more important for them as part of education. I think that is going to have long-term impacts down the road for colleges and universities around around the globe. But on a good front, I think it has inserted a flexibility that we didn't know was possible, or we knew was possible, we just weren't willing to do it uh, before the pandemic. Within a couple of days in March of 2020, I saw institutions around the world rethink almost everything that they were doing. Clearly, the biggest thing that everyone knows about is the move from you know face to face to virtual learning, uh, and and that to me has longer term impacts. But there's also other things as well, uh, you know academic calendars, which tend to be ch- you know chiseled in stone uh, at most uh, institutions around the world, suddenly were now much more uh, flexible. The idea about whether you learn in person or online or maybe a hybrid of both, whether you live on campus as well, uh, how research is conducted uh, um, uh, across uh, time zones. All of these things that we thought there was a certain way of doing it, now suddenly was upended by the pandemic and habits have changed as a result. So I think the longer term impact of the pandemic is a, a much more flexible post-secondary, tertiary education system that I think over time will serve uh, learners of all ages much better than the pre-COVID system.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, do you think there are some um, things that we have to do in universities to make sure that we don't come back to what we had? Yeah, I think it's a really good thing. I think that there is so much discussion now about getting back
1: to normal. Um, first of all, I don't even know what normal is anymore, but, uh, but there is this talk. And I think there, are a, there is a significant fraction of people on campuses around the world who wanna go back to 2019. Um, and I think what's important is for us, to me, this is almost like an oral history project. Uh, I've been encouraging universities to do this. In fact, this is a great student project. I would love to go on every campus and interview faculty members staff members administrators in different departments different schools and understand what has changed during the pandemic what they like what they don't like what they want to stick what they don't want to stick i think we need to get a much better handle on what the pandemic really did change day to day on campuses than we do now we know at a we know at a macro level what's changed but do we really know how the workflow has changed, how learning has changed, how pedagogy has changed, how interactions have changed. And again, what's good, what's bad. I would love, I, I've been encouraging universities to send their students to go out to do this. First of all, it's a great history, historical documentation project for people 20, 30, 50 years from now to know what happened during the pandemic. But more than that, we as humans, when, when, we have a, uh, when, when we have something like this that has happened to us, we tend to want to forget it. Um, and so I think there's a, a time right now where we want to capture what has changed over the last
0: 20 months and what do we want to keep. Yes, so uh, I, I've seen um, uh, a lot of effort in the uh, universities, particularly in, in professors in faculty to change their courses to online and then realizing that uh, they were not working and making some changes yeah. to make them more interactive. Uh, in fact, I believe they were not great because they were very traditional uh, face-to-face teaching, but I think that uh, using web conferences enhances the bad parts of uh, traditional learning. And uh, uh, over over time, uh, I've seen also surveys of students, we have done also here, and I've seen that number uh, of uh, a big number of students complaining that they don't like to learn in online no? because they are uh, they were supposed to learn face to face. But there's around a thirty percent that appears most of the time that they say they prefer online over uh, over over face to face. And for me, that number is the most surprising one on those surveys because it means that uh, we hadn't realized that there's a, a necessity that we have uh, to serve in uh, in our students. And I, um, I, I, I see these discussions in some universities. We are a face-to-face university. How are we going to have, uh, we, we shouldn't serve those students. And uh, what, what, are, what do you think are the, the, the balance there in, in those, those? Well, first of
1: all, I think that there is not just one type of learner. I think that most of the time that when we have thought about our learners, we've segmented them into two groups. Traditional, 18 plus, uh, early 20s, right, that transition from high school to career, Um, and then non-traditional, which is everybody else, essentially everybody else. Well, no brand out there, no segment of the economy that is consumer-facing thinks of its customers in only two ways, and largely around age, right? So I think there are so many different segments of of learners out there, and I, I don't want to call them students anymore because they are learners, because I think when we think students we tend to think young and we tend to think physical. They have to be in a physical spot learning and they tend to be young. If we think of them as learners, we do tend to start to think of now people lifelong who need to learn uh, for their careers. So yes, I think it opens up more segments where you there were probably students or learners you were never serving before that you now can serve. But the other thing about online, I don't think it's a binary choice. I wanna be an online student or I wanna be a face-to-face student or learner. I think it's really now around a lot more flexibility. I talked in my keynote uh, address here uh, around kind of consumer choice. So for example, now when we go shopping, we don't make a distinction about whether we're doing shopping online or shopping in in person. We decide in the moment whether we want to shop in a store, whether we want to buy something online and have it shipped to us, whether we want to pick something up at the curb or inside the store and having ordered it previously. Could we think of that same experience in learning? Where we don't have as much personalization, because it's hard, I think, for institutions to think, well, we're going to teach somebody online one day and in person the next day and online the following day. But where there is a lot more flexibility, more hybrid, for example, where I could take some of my courses online, some in person. Where I could take a portion of a course, maybe the the lecture part online, so then I could really focus on it and then go in person to meet with a faculty member around a project or around a lab, for example that's the kind of flexibility I think we need to take from every other consumer interaction we have now that to me when I say flexibility after the pandemic is how I'm thinking about how we design the future of higher
0: ed mm-hmm. yes and um, uh, education is the last uh, big uh, sector of the economy that is being digitized and and somehow's been digitized by necessity you know because of this uh, changes that uh, we needed for to, to um, Well, for yeah, pandemic. it's been
1: digitized, but it hasn't been transformed by digitalization. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that. I talked a little bit about that in my, um, in my keynote as well, is that we tended to um, digitize parts of campus that needed to be, the classroom, for example, student records and things like that, but we haven't connected them. Um, I call it the plumbing. We have the plumbing in place but we haven't connected the plumbing of this. So that we have a much more seamless system. So that when a student comes into the university through admissions, that then handoff is less seamless or more seamless to, uh, to those who are in charge of student records, who then to academic advisors and faculty members, and then as alumni of that institution. That it's a much more seamless system that follows that student through the process. So we know when they're getting stuck, why they're getting stuck other offerings we could give to that person, especially over their lifetime. I mean, that's the big change, I think, coming out of the pandemic from the economy writ large is, is the job market is changing. Jobs are changing, careers are changing. Uh, we're gonna, we're, we are going to need education that is continual, not episodic, what do I mean by that? We used to think of going back to school as a thing, right? I'm, in the, I'm, I'm working in a job, I need training, I wanna get a promotion, I wanna change careers. I'm going to go back to school was the the phrase. Um, We thought of it as we stopped doing something to do something else, in this case education. I don't think that's going to be really the case. It isn't the case anymore and it will be less the case in the future where I think education is going to be continual. Well, the problem is that most traditional universities uh, around the world don't really operate that way, right? They think of you applying to a program and being in that program. They don't think of you, I'm taking a course today um, because I wanna get a promotion tomorrow. They don't think that way. Now, there is a whole new uh, cadre of, of education providers out there that think that way, the Coursera's of the world, the edX's of the world. There's all of these education providers out there that think you need a single course or a single class to get promoted tomorrow. Universities don't think that way, and I think that is a huge market for colleges and universities going forward.
0: And, and, uh, and it's very interesting also, because I, I believe that um, uh, higher education uh, institutions offer um, continuous education and not lifelong learning yep. experiences. And it's a way also of uh, paying some bills sometimes. And it's not seen as a business uh, as important of us as, uh, as a business of degrees, uh, granting degrees. And there has to be a more Connection between those two words Um, What do you think uh, will be uh, the value uh, of degrees uh, in the future if we advance towards this micro credentialing uh, What what will be the value of a degree?
1: Oh, I think there's still value. Uh, I think it's still a signal I still think it's a very strong signal of of discipline of finishing something of, of expertise in some ways I think that Uh, Paul LeBlanc talked uh, here about this idea of what do you really know when you know that degree? I think we're starting to get better at that, these competencies, building these competencies into degrees or micro degrees. And I think, and I know you're doing a lot of experiments around um, kind of blockchain technologies around the degree. So once learners own their learning, meaning they own the assets of their learning, Not only the degrees, the micro-credentials, the competencies, all of that that's underlying that degree. Once they own that, that becomes much more transferable and transportable for them. And when they could do this by showing a QR code to an employer and say, yes, I know all of this and it's been verified, and here it is, here's the evidence of that learning. I think that really changes the equation. It doesn't mean the degree goes away, but the degree is then only one of many signals that you know something. And the question is, can universities pivot in a way to offer these other assets of learning? Competencies, for example, micro-degrees. I think, I think universities are so stuck in their legacies of these old-style degrees and programs, it's very hard for them to think differently.
0: Yes, most of the time, those degrees, uh, higher education degrees are like encyclopedic. No? It's more like uh, trying to be more, more, more vast. And, uh- and it's, also, it's also lengthy and expensive. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to agree with you. And uh, uh, what well, you were saying about these um, uh, micro-credentials uh, and the expectation of people around those. But uh, how can we uh, educate the market? Because what I have seen is that uh, in the uh, uh, initiatives that we have launched in Tech de Monterey around micro-credentialing, one of the problem is, problems is how the market recognizes that. Uh, uh, it takes times and it's very fragmented because I also see people. Uh, for instance, we have a bootcamp that is around 480 hours, and I see people that say this is a bootcamp of half a day. No, for so how you? What will be the approach to make it uh, known by the market
1: yeah I, I think the approach that and when you say the market do you mean employers or empl- students b- both of them both but of the employers them. is yeah very I mean I think that one. I think students react to the employer so if exactly. the employers say this is something they want mm-hmm. then students will follow um, to get the employers on board I think it really starts with uh, individual partnerships with employers. I think, again, Paul LeBlanc at at Southern New Hampshire has proven this out when they started their competency-based degrees. They worked with individual employers. Once individual employers were on board, then other employers saw that, that it was working. Hey, if the big employer in the area wants to do this, there must be something right about it. I don't think it could be something, I don't think it could be something that institutions create and then just wait for the marketplace to follow. I think they basically have to create the marketplace. And they create the marketplace by working with in big employers that have huge talent needs and say, we're gonna come in and create these micro degrees for you.
0: Right. You, you were talking about uh, how we are social animals and that we need um, to um, socialize, particularly younger uh, adults, no? younger people, more than uh, older adults. and. Uh, We are seeing a tendency of uh, students when we offer them the opportunity of hybrid learning and uh, the opportunity to attend or not to attend a course. Uh, We we are seeing a a number, a big number of students that decide not to attend. So I was having this conversation with Paul yesterday here in the in the frame of the Eighth International Conference of uh, Educational Innovation. what will make the students come, come. to the campus? Because yeah. it, uh, uh, for me, it has been also something similar. I have experimented work from home, uh, very you like comfortable like football, to be right? there, no. no distractions. I have the fridge on the side, right. uh, everything. I guess you have to offer more free food yeah, yeah, I don't have right. to commute, <laughs> free food, exactly. So what will make the students come, make it worth for the students that's to come to the question. campus? Because yeah. even if they're lacking like, socialization, What we have seen is that they decide not to come. Yeah, I think
1: that we have to have a reason for them to come. We have to create a student experience. We have to create a learning experience that can only be done on campus, right? So they're not going to come for a lecture, right? They're not going to come for a meeting with their faculty member, right? I think that in-person office hours with faculty members are a thing of the past, right? I think most of that's going to be done uh, online. But what will they come for? Hands-on research, um, hands-on projects. Uh, more group discussions about problems to be solved, right? I think experiential learning will get them to come to campus and might get them to come off campus to go to an employer to do work as well, right? But I think you have to offer them some sort of experiential hands-on learning so that they apply, the only way they could apply what they're learning online from home is to come to campus. That has to be a much better experience than it was in the past. And then around that, you could build social experiences, but there has to be a magnet for them to come.
0: Yeah, the, uh, we, I, I tend to agree also on that. But we, as you know, our educational model is uh, challenge based, experiential, yep. uh, and around uh, at the end in the curriculum, uh, the fifty percent of the experiences, learning experience of the student will be uh, challenge based yep. uh, uh, learning. Uh, we are on the like the sixth semester of the implementation of the eight semesters. Uh, And as we advance, the uh, experiential learning experiences become bigger, no? So uh, but we have been by necessity, uh, uh, we have designed by necessity this experience online during the pandemic, no? And we have learned also that somehow you can also do that online, online. (laughs) no? Maybe not everything, but uh, it depends also on the field, no? Some some fields you need a lab or whatever. But if you're doing a, a. a challenge that is involving uh, some business economic or even sometimes a uh, technological uh, IT that could uh, be done thing that can be done online and uh, we were wondering if there was necessary uh to attract the students to the campus just for social things i would just uh, well uh, giving you some uh, some thoughts about that
1: yeah i mean I, again i think the the social alone will not i don't think attract them um uh, now, some people will probably disagree with me on that, because mm-hmm. we've seen in the US, for example, that people wanted to come back to campus, but they didn't want to come back for campus to classes. Mm-hmm. They wanted to come back for the social aspects of learning, mm-hmm. uh, of really, of you know, just socialization. So I think that you could do that, but you have to build some sort of academic reason for them to be back as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And uh, about the... Uh, uh, mental health problems that we have had over the last years and, uh, and during the pandemic, they have uh, increased a lot. I, I realized in the last few years that we had some um, research and uh, uh, some initiatives that we have done to help our students to cope with this mental health, I would say crisis, uh, that was here before the pandemic, that most of the people were not talking about that. It was something sort of a taboo, no? So I believe that during the pandemic, it has become more uh, uh, public. Uh, uh, And uh, what do you think the universities have to do to deal with that problem?
1: I I think that they have to uh, think of and consider student well-being as part of everything else that they do. Right. When we think of student success in the past, we've always thought of it as... Uh, either financial or uh, Or we thought of the hurdles as financial or academic the reason why students didn't succeed was because of academics or financial I think well-being is a huge piece of that. It's the third leg of that uh, Of that stool and as a result we need to have the resources available to these students from day one in order to be thinking about that We also need to be tracking students in a much better way again This goes back to data Are students showing up are they signing on Is there a change in their academic? You know, Faculty members are really the front line on this to know when there is a change in students. Um, And is there an easy way for faculty members to record that, to report that? Again, it's tracking of the data that I think ends up helping us identify those students who do need help. And that we think of this not as another service, because I think that too many universities think, oh, this is something else that we have to do. But it's really part and parcel of the student success that I think most universities are interested in, in doing, right? And how do we help our students succeed? And it's not just academic and financial anymore.
0: It is also well-being. Yeah. We have some, uh, several programs here uh, to help the students in, in prevention, but also in attention. And, uh, and those programs have implied uh, uh, investment no? from, uh, from the university, an important investment uh, from the university. One, one part of your uh, talk, uh, the beginning of this talk, you said that uh, higher education has been, become more expensive. No? So uh, I, I sometimes feel when I have conversations with our colleagues in higher ed, that there is a contradiction on how can we become less expensive and how can we uh, well atten- uh, get attention on these issues and also experiential learning or competency-based learning, which uh, in Tecna we believe is the future. We are doing that, that right now tends to be more, I would say, labor intensive. It needs more time from from faculty members. So how can we cope with this tension of becoming more efficient, less expensive, but at the same time evolving? uh, Well, I
1: think there are more efficiencies. I I clearly think higher ed has a, I mean, it's a knowledge-based industry, which means we're always extending what we're doing, not stopping anything. I still think there's a lot of things we could stop doing in higher ed that we do largely because of tradition, and it's hard to stop. So, I think that's, that's one thing. Second, I think that we could not necessarily reduce cost all the time, but increase value. Right? What do I mean by that? Right? What can we do so that students kind of get more out of the experience at the same cost? Are there, we talk about these micro credentials, certificates, and other types of credentials. Could we add those on to what they're already getting as a piece of that experience? Because the incremental cost of those might not be very high. But for the student, those are high value because it might actually get them a job where it wouldn't have otherwise if they didn't have that micro-credential, for example. So overall, it won't reduce the cost to them, but it increases the value. And to me, that is a win. Because if we say, because I think right now the problem is not only is higher education considered high cost, but a lot of learners out there don't think it's it's worth Mm -hmm. worth that cost. They don't find value in it. So we have
0: to work on the value side as well. Exactly, they question in the the, the ratio you know, of that, and uh, I call that the the value equation of uh, uh, higher education in general. And we have to rethink this value equation of higher education, including the cost, but also what you obtain from that. Will you? Uh, what will you? If you could. Uh, if you could outline like uh, some some steps uh, to rethink the value equation of a university, like very general, yep. what do you think they are uh, for a well, recommendation? For I, I
1: think one of it is to understand
0: what are the products we're selling and to whom we're
1: selling them to. Right now, we basically offer one product to one set of students, uh, and 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 you know largely uh, you know degrees to undergraduate and graduate students who are of a certain age. So I think that we need to rethink that product mix and who we're, who we're serving. I think that will increase the value to those people who don't see themselves in higher education right now. I think that will make higher education much more equitable. I also think that we need to figure out what the package looks like. Again, the packages that we sell students now are very old school in terms of types of degrees. Are there different types of packages where some degrees might be shorter, some de- and, and, and then add, there's an add-on uh, to get these micro-credentials. Some other degrees might include micro-credentials, so everybody graduates with some sort of industry-recognized certificate, which gives them more value. But we could do all that, and nobody knows about it. So the other piece of this is communicating the value of higher education, and not just the economic value. I get it that most people go to higher education to better their lives and mm-hmm. to get a, a job. But there's so many other aspects of higher education that you may not realize that are actually critical to living a better life. Um, your, your health is going to be better. Uh, you're going to be more connected to your community. Um, there's obviously larger uh, issues around uh, you know government and self-government uh, in the world and just community in general that we need to sell higher education on. So that is not just seen as an economic marker. Because when it's just seen as an economic marker, what ends up happening is, first of all, people only go into Careers that they find are going to pay off, and we heard Paul LeBlanc again talk yesterday about the humanities um, and the decline of the humanities. A huge problem in the United States right now because people don't think there's an economic payoff, but there actually is. First of all, an economic payoff, but there's these. We need these people to help us continue on, uh, you know, forward. Right? We we need a uh, we need a, a vast array of people with different majors. So I think that we need to. So I think one piece of it is figuring out. What your packages are that you're selling, and second is communicating that.
0: Thank you. Well, uh, with this, I think uh, we you let us uh, food for thought. Thank you very much, Jeff, uh, for this interview. We enjoyed it a lot, and I hope that our audience will enjoy it too. I hope so too. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx/edutrendspodcast and ife.tech.mx. A special thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey, the Institute for the Future of Education, and the TechSounds team. TechSounds producer Miguel Mejia, Trans producers Esteban Venegas and Christian Gijosa. post-production Alejandro Sánchez. Stay tuned and play TechSounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.